Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case and the semi-animated In the Know from Mike Judge and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Traitors. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. From Academy Award winner Stephen Zalian. This is what I do for a living. Top critics agree Netflix's Ripley is masterful, sumptuous, and suspenseful. He's a liar. It's his profession. I have no idea what you're talking about. Ripley is the finest thing TV has offered in many years. The Guardian gives it five stars and raves. Andrew Scott is absolutely spellbinding. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series, Ripley. I like the name. It is Thursday, June 8th. Last fall, when the Writers Guild first started talking about their demands in the upcoming studio contract negotiations, artificial intelligence wasn't even really on the agenda. Cut to May 1st, when the WGA called its first strike in 15 years, and AI was one of the key issues cited. You've probably seen those photos of the strike signs on the picket lines. AI will not replace us. Death to the robot writers. My favorite. AI does not have childhood trauma. The writers will get that one. That's how fast ChatGPT and AI has become top of mind for writers, as well as actors and directors. But there's been a lot of confusion about what the guilds actually want to restrict, what the studio position is on AI, and whether AI might actually be beneficial to all these creative people, rather than coming for their jobs. So it's time for us to do an episode just on this important subject. John Lopez is a TV writer. He most recently was a co-EP on The Terminal List, the Chris Pratt show on Amazon. He did The Man Who Fell to Earth on Showtime. And he's also a member of the Guild's AI Working Group, which is a subset that focused on coming up with the framework of the proposed regulations that the Guild would take to the studios and streamers in the negotiations. It's important to note that the WGA isn't trying to ban AI, although there's been some confusion about that in their own messaging. They basically acknowledge that AI is inevitable and actually could be a great tool. They do want to protect writers from being replaced or marginalized or made to suffer economic harm at the hand of artificial writers. But this stance raises a ton of other questions, some of which the Guild has answers for, many it doesn't. That's sort of the reason they want to assert control here. Nobody knows how this is all going to evolve. Just last night, the Directors Guild told its members that its tentative deal includes only that employers can't use AI, quote, without consultation, end quote, with the DGA, whatever that means. The writers don't like that language, and John and I talked before that message was sent. But he does get into the details here on AI and the strike, some of the terms that are being thrown around, and what's actually at stake here for both sides. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellamy, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with John Lopez, who, in addition to being a television writer, is also a member of the Writers Guild AI Working Group. So I'm going to ask you what that is. But first of all, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great beer. What exactly is the AI Working Group? It sounds a little dystopian, like you're <laughs> there to kind of convert us all into machines. I mean, everything is dystopian these days. 
<laughs> no, it was basically it's a it's it's like a non-official committee. Like the Writers Guild has all kinds of different sections and organs and things that are beholden to certain things. And then I guess I would call us like a strike task force who basically in the run-up to ChatGPT's debut and especially right after it, were assembled writers who have an interest in technology and who know about the stuff who are like hey, this AI thing isn't going away. It's really, really, really important. And someone in the guild needs to deal with it. And usually when you say that to someone powerful on the board or in the guild, they're like, okay, why don't you deal with it? Right, exactly. Uh, so that's how you got chosen. That was going to be my next question. It wasn't because you've written on sci-fi shows? In my particular case, I happen to have a lot of friends and contacts in Silicon Valley. I actually was very familiar with GPT 3.0. A friend had had me play with it and test it like a couple of years ago. So I knew a lot about this and I emailed a board member and I said, hey, I know this chat GPT thing just debuted in November and it seems like it came out of nowhere, but there's like a whole bunch of stuff you should know about it, how it works, like the, the tech landscape, the business landscape. And basically he's like, great, I want to introduce you to John Rogers and Derek Hughes because they are running the group. And it was basically a group of us who had all had similar journeys to merging up and meeting and figuring out what this was. All right. So you guys do your research. You come back to the guild and you say, these are our recommendations for what we should ask for. And you guys did not recommend that the guild push to ban AI. Why not? Why not just say, listen, this is evolving. We have no idea what this is going to be. Let's recommend that we say no AI for three years. We will figure this out when everybody realizes what this is going to be. Why not ask for that? Well, two reasons. One, can you imagine saying no to cars or the internet when they first were <laughs> debuted? I mean, try being that person. You get run over. Second, and I think this was, you know, in the guild, there's a lot of sensitivity to being on top of technological change and making sure that things are in our MBAs. And in particular for us, you know, as we played with this stuff, we really quickly realized this was the last negotiation where we have an informed chance to put specific language in the contract that governs how this is used. And if you don't do it now, in three years, it's too late. Because the stuff is, it's evolving really fast. Like, I think we have this view of it as like, oh my God, they just built a spaceship. And what you need to think of it more like, oh, this is a Model T. This is like the early version of it. And it's going to change a lot. It's going to get a lot better than what it currently is. And how it's used, obviously, no one really truly knows about it. But if you don't get that ground floor stuff in there now, just the way the industry works through attrition, inertia, and all that kind of stuff, things get baked in that you can no longer stop or you can no longer control. So the proposals you initially made, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm reading this uh, in the coverage, you recommended three things. One is that AI-generated material is not, quote, literary material right. or source material. And that gets to the credit issue and getting writers, making sure writers are paid. There was a second one where you guys wanted to say no AI-created scripts or AI rewrites. And the third one was studio AI programs cannot use WGA writer work, meaning you can't just plug social network into chat GPT and say, do this, but make it about Tesla and have a script come out. Or if they do, they have to pay Aaron Sorkin for the right to do. Right. That. And as a matter of fact, I should just clarify something. I don't think people appreciate this. The social network is already in chat GPT. That's there's no, <laughs> that's not like, I think what gets lost in this conversation is that OpenAI is not transparent about how it trained up the models and its data source is filled with pirated stuff. Like every script that's in every repository online, which is pretty much any script people care about, has already been used to train up the model. 
Why don't the studios sue over that? That's a great question. (laughs) Sony owns the social network. Why don't they make a copyright claim against ChatGPT? That is literally a question we asked ourselves in the working group. Like once we started figuring out how this stuff worked, how it was made and what it was, we're like, we were literally waiting for Disney to sue. We're like, oh, the instant someone plugs Mickey Mouse into an image generator, like Disney sues high school auditoriums in Iowa for putting on Beauty and the Beast. How is it not suing over this? And yeah. that's a question you have to ask them. The only thing I can think of is, A, this stuff came out of nowhere in terms of the town's point of view. Obviously, in Silicon Valley, if you've been up there, you've known about AI, generative AI, and language models in particular. But outside of maybe Disney, who they have the Imagineers, who are like incredible engineers, I'm not sure any studio really fully understands what this is yet. Or maybe they want ChatGPT and other AI programs to learn from these scripts and get so good at it that they don't need writers. I mean, yes, I think that's a I think that's a little bit of a pipe dream, but that's definitely something we thought. We're like, listen, they don't fully understand it. They don't understand its limitations and how it works, but they're definitely going to have that thought. It's going to be like, holy shit, I can just put every Aaron Sorkin script in and suddenly now I can just output Aaron Sorkin to the end of time. And there's a lot of problems with that. Number one, copyright. Number one, rights of likeness. I mean, SAG, if you're looking at their, um, there was just like a variety uh, op-ed by Duncan Crabtree Ireland. I hope I'm saying his name right. Yeah, he's the executive director of SAG after. Yes. And he basically listed their AI position. And I was personally relieved because, you know, I saw the DGA deal. I'm glad that they got the principle of AI regulation in their deal, but there are no specifics to it. And that's something we specifically talked about in the working group. We're like, this is one of those things where the devil is a little bit in the details. You can't just say, hey, we're not going to use AI to replace people. That's kind of like a vague promise. And there's a lot of loopholes in that. But then I look at SAG's proposal and I'm like, all right, they're on it. And one of the things they talk about is a right to likeness. Like you can't just say, hey, as part of your contract, you're going to act in the show. We're going to use you for like three days and then we're going to capture you. And then we're going to reuse you without proper compensation or compensation to the tune of like five to 10 cents a time we use you, which is insane. Well, and there are right of publicity laws state by state that already protect against that in some ways. The SAG proposal, they want a federal protection. Good luck with that. Good luck getting Congress to focus on Hollywood actors. But state by state, SAG has been effective in lobbying for these laws. And they, you know, some of them are pretty strict. SAG also wants to focus on copyright law and, you know, making sure that this is a legal framework that protects people's images. And, you know, that does and doesn't apply to what you do, because the writers have very specific goals here. And the one proposal that does seem to have made it through to the AMPTP is this question of what is a AI-generated script, and what rights does a studio have if you create something via computer? And that's where I want to focus right now, because the Guild position is is somewhat nuanced on this. Tell me what it is. The Guild's position is that you absolutely need to have a human writer. And I think the question of what rights the studios have in generating script-writing material actually does go down to the question of copyright. Like right now, the U.S. Copyright Office is doing listening sessions. We had John August speak for us where they're determining whether or not AI-generated material can be copyrighted at all. And right now it can't, which is good because I think it makes everyone pause and think about this. You know, right. I talked to friends in Silicon Valley and we in the committee came to this conclusion and I asked a couple friends, it's like, is this kind of accurate? 
it's basically these large language models, specifically when it comes to creating creative work, are very sophisticated plagiarism machines, in a sense, in that they take everyone's work. And it's not that they remix it. They definitely learn principles. But again, I hesitate to say learn because that implies kind of an anthropomorphic view of these models. These things are just math equations. Mm -hmm. And someone runs a number and it spits out a likely answer. There's no meaning. There's no intent. There's no point of view. There's no human being behind it. And the human being behind it is trying to run it through a magic, a series of prompts that kind of like some of them work, some of them don't. And frankly, from a professional writer's point of view, I've worked with Anthropics Claude, I've worked with Bard, I've worked with GPT-3 and 4. And it's honestly kind of frustrating to get material that you're proud of, that you can defend, that you can go to a studio executive or more importantly, an actor and say, this is why you're saying this. Like, I think people forget that like 95% of what a writer does is defend the things they've written and explain them right. to a million people, all of whom want to change them and all of whom think they can do them better than the writer and who have spent like maybe one one hundredth of the time with a writer thinking about why these words are on the page. A model can't do that. Right. So if the notion that a writer must be a person is already ingrained in copyright law, why does the Guild need extra protections? I think the Guild is careful because, you know, we're always looking for loopholes and it's not even an extra protection. I believe when we talked about this, and this is something that I'm not super qualified to say, because what we did is we delivered our report to the negotiating committee, to the Guild staff, and they used that material to then come up with what they were going to do in the room. Mm -hmm. But I believe we came to the realization that it's already kind of in the Guild's contract that a writer is not an impersonal conveyor of information. But we just wanted to solidify that. And that we thought that was the easy ask. We thought that was the thing that they would look at and be like, yeah, that's already in the contract. Let's move on to the more harder tasks. And they didn't. And that was what scared a lot of people. And that's what I think right. fired up a lot of people about the strike. And that's also why it's a little, you know, God bless the DGA, good for them for making a deal. But it's a little bit like what they got in their deal points is basically the starting position. That's where we should have gone into the room when we're saying we want to regulate AI. We hope you did your homework and you did ours. This is where we're starting from. Now we actually need to get into the details of what regulating AI means. Well, the AMPTP offer, as I have read it, is basically what the DGA got, which is reconfirming that a writer is a person. Right. And then they offered these this weird like periodic meetings to like discuss the topic, which yeah. sounded like their effort to punt down the road. And like you said, in three years, everything will be different and they'll be negotiating from a position of strength right. rather than a position of mystery and questions. Yes. I mean, listen, I will give it to a, the AMPTP and Carol, who I do not know. I'm sure for them, this was a little bit of a like learning to fly a plane while it was getting made kind of thing. I don't doubt that they didn't fully understand the stuff because the dynamic of the working group was we were a lot of younger writers. We were tech savvy writers. We were writers who care about this stuff. And so we had to explain to leadership. We had to explain how these models worked. I don't know who the AMPTP had on that level explaining to Carol Lombardini what it was they were negotiating over. So I'm sure there's a little bit of a, ah, we don't know what this is. Let's not give anything up. I think that's the biggest thing. It's like everyone looks at AI. AI has become this hype word that means a lot of different things. And what we're specifically concerned about for the Writers Guild is the large language models and how they generate text and regulating them. And I don't think that people necessarily know what everything is. 
from Academy Award winner Steven Zalian. This is what I do for a living. Top critics agree Netflix's Ripley is masterful, sumptuous, and suspenseful. He's a liar. It's his profession. I have no idea what you're talking about. Ripley is the finest thing TV has offered in many years. The Guardian gives it five stars and raves Andrew Scott is absolutely spellbinding. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series, Ripley. I like the name. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. What you guys fear is a future where there is one writer and a computer. Yes. And the writer can then run his or her ideas through ChatGPT and work with that. And you don't need all these other people. The sounding board is every piece of literary material that has ever been written. Right. And you can see that reflected back to you in seconds. Yeah. And I think it's not that we fear that actual future coming true. I don't think that's going to come true because of the way these models work. Yeah, you said that everything you've seen is shitty when you when you put it through there, at least for now. Yeah, at least for now. It works that way because what these things do is they average everything. So you're literally getting an average. You put material into a model and it will give you the average, the most cliched, the most. I don't know. There's some pretty cliched and average content <laughs> out there. Nothing you write, of course. Of but course. Like I it's use the really example new. of Christmas movies. Right. You know, the Christmas movie formula is very subtle differences and you just tweak it a little and shoot it. And maybe ChatGPT could create a Christmas movie script. It possibly could. And there are going to be people who try to do that. And I think the way some of the best television is written is you get a group of people in together. And when you lose that group, there's a certain creative ferment and froth that I think loses quality loses ability. And then if you're the showrunner, it's a miserable existence. Oh my God. It's already a miserable existence as it is without ChatGPT, like trying to like run post, run production, do rewrites, get stuff up and running all by yourself. You know, showrunners, the people I've worked for, especially as the streaming revolution has taken off, like they look like shit. You know, you know how like they say like the presidency ages someone four years or whatever. I mean, that's basically a showrunner who gets a first time show ordered now. You literally just watch the gray hairs increase. You watch the bags under their eyes. And that has already happened without the excuse of, hey, here's technology that will make it easier. And I think our argument is it's not going to make it easier. If anything, it's going to degrade the quality of the work. If anything, it's going to encourage more Hallmark. And by the way, no knock on Hallmark special movies. I've got buddies who've written them, but you're going to get that push and it's going to make TV worse. It's going to make the industry worse. It's going to make the job worse and people aren't going to want to do it. Maybe cheaper though. So take us through the credit process as you see it. Because so much about writing and getting paid for what you write is about 
the credit process. And there's a right. an arbitration that you go through. But let's say there is an original script that is significantly enhanced by AI. Does that lead to a co-writing credit, story by credit? What, how, how does AI? The, yeah. How does the guild see this issue? Or is it just these are tools, same as Google, the credit process must be kept only for writers? Definitely the latter. These are definitely tools. Like, again, we've I've been talking to people on the line, like I myself, so far as they currently stand. And I think for a few years, they are not sufficient to produce a good script or a producible script. That's another thing that is kind of like lost in this mix is even if you fed these things, every possible word combination in the universe, they still don't know how to talk to actors. They still don't know how to make a day. They still don't know how to meet a budget. And that's something that you need a human being for. So I don't think there will ever be, or sh there should ever be a shared credit with ChatGPT. When I see people putting like novels out on, on Amazon, it's like co-written with ChatGPT. I just like, I smack my head and I'm like, You're, it's pointless. And I, and I, you know, it's funny. I'm even talking to friends in Silicon Valley who are starting to implement no synthetic text rules where they're getting flooded with subpar mediocre text that is kind of empty and meaningless because there's no there there. Someone wrote a prompt. It spit out five pages of text. The person just forwards the five pages. I mean, God damn, people in Hollywood hate reading as it is. Yeah. Right. But what about episode 17 of a 24 episode Law and Order season where you want a procedural self-contained and you know the beats can that generate something that is at least workable and if so how do you account for that help in the process the studio would say okay this is faster and better let's make it also cheaper we don't want to pay writers who aren't actually writing well, again, I think that's a little bit of a, a misunderstanding of how writing actually works, like what the job of writing is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that... It's like, editing as well. Well, yeah, it's not just editing. It's like literally sitting there and staring at a laptop for four hours and banging <laughs> your head against the keys and looking at a blank page and being like, this sucks. And all these all the Silicon Valley people I've talked to, especially the ones doing generative writing startups, they're always like, hey, man, we're fixing the blank page problem for you. Now you can just write shit. And I'm like, that's actually not the problem. The problem is thinking about it. The problem is knowing what you want to say. And even, I will argue, and I know everyone degrades Law & Order, which, by the way, is an incredibly successful I show. I don't degrade it. Are you kidding me? It's, it's been on 25 years. Good for them. That takes a lot of thought. Getting to cliched, and, and by the way, Law & Order, I'm not calling it cliched, but getting to that level actually requires thought. And I don't think these programs replace that element of thought for you. What they do is they make typing faster. And you still have to go through it. You still have to pick and choose. You still have to decide. And so far, I don't see how these things make the process faster, cheaper, or better. And I think it's the, the thing we're fighting is the future idea that you can use this as an excuse to pay writers less. Because I think the work will be the same, even as these models advance. It will still require the same amount of time. They'll still require the same amount of thought. They'll still require the same amount of talking to an actor and explaining to them, please just say the line this this line, the way we've written it, we thought about it a lot. And the actor being like, I can't say it this way. And then you're talking about it for 15 minutes. And finally, you figure out, you know, how they can say it. Though, bear in mind, this is now three yeah. to five, seven years from now. Who the fuck knows? Literally, yeah. we've been talking about this for six to eight months. Like, yeah, imagine six to eight years where this is going to be. Everyone ridicules the people who are like AI doomsayers. Like, it's going to kill us all. Which, by the way, 
I've talked to people at DeepMind. I've talked to people at Anthropic. I've talked to people at OpenAI. When you get them in private, they will tell you they genuinely believe this. And the reason is, A, if it's not regulated, it'll be developed into something truly scary. And B, if someone releases like an open source model of this stuff on the internet, and suddenly there's no control behind it, it's a little bit like a biological weapon. Like all the time and effort and money that went into ChatGPT4, if they just release those weights online, someone could tweak it a little bit and a little bit and then use it to do some really nefarious shit. A lot bigger issues here than just whether you can create a West Wing knockoff. Right, exactly. But by the way, that's an issue for us. <laughs> yes, but that's a very big deal for Hollywood people. So where does this end, do you think? Because I wonder if the WGA is going to be able to get anything further than what the directors got, which was just basically an admission or a reaffirmation that the writers are people and computers are not people. Do you think you're going to be able to get anything beyond that? I think we have to. I mean, I look, like I said, I looked at the DJ. You don't, you don't think that's an area that the guild will give on? I'm not on the negotiating committee. I'm not on the board, but I have a feeling, especially just being out on the, the lines. I mean, three out of four signs are some variation of fuck AI. Yeah, like, but that's because it's funny. It, it's funny because <laughs> it's true, right? It's like the right. ultimate rule of comedy yes, is like yes. people are genuinely concerned about this. So I think if the WGA comes up with something as kind of bland and anodyne as the DGAs get, like, here's the thing. I don't want to trash the DGA in the sense that they got the principle. The AMPTP wasn't even giving us the principle because they were so scared they didn't want to give away the house, right? And now the DGA is like, come on, guys. I also think the AMPTP and the studios looked at this, realized how much horrible blowback. Like, it's literally the worst thing you could do. It's like, hey, hey, would you promise not to replace us with a robot? Um, right. I don't know. Whoa, don't go that far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes them literally look like a cartoonish evil villain. It's like you couldn't yeah. write a cartoonishly evil villain that much. Right. Uh, that bad. Maybe Chat GPT could. Right. But no, I get it. So, and I think the the actors and the writers have specific and different issues yeah. from the directors. I'm looking forward to SAG because, again, reading that op ed from SAG, they have clearly thought about this a lot. They've been dealing this with voiceover contracts for a while. So they understand the ways in which. Oh, voiceover is kind of fucked. Don't you agree? I mean, there will come a time where mid level voiceover artists are replaced. Yeah. That is tough. That is tough. But listen, I think at the end of the day, for any artist protections at all, you kind of have to go through the U.S. Copyright Office and you have to go through legislation. And that is a fight that is going to extend well beyond this strike. Oh, and, and SAG has been thinking about it. I moderated a panel at CES in January with SAG, sponsored by SAG. Yeah. And they were all over this. They wanted that panel at CES to show everybody they've been thinking about this issue for a long time. Yeah, and I will I will contrast with the, that with the DGA, who I do not think has been thinking about this a long time. As a matter of fact, one of the things we in the working group did is we're like, oh my God, this doesn't just affect us. This affects SAG, this affects DGA, this affects Yahtzee. And so we were constantly throwing rocks at the window of the DGA members we knew, being like, hey, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. And it took forever to break through. And only, I would say, in May, after we went on strike, did I think some of the members start coming back to us and be like, so this AI thing, you think it's really going to come? And I remember being like, yeah, man, you know, Google's developing Finaki. Finaki is basically a text-to-video service. It's really small and crappy right now. But they have an entire content of YouTube library to train that thing up on. Do you think that's not coming? Do you think that's not going to affect your job? Right. And I think this was not a priority for the DGA when they started their talks 
early on, right? It became a priority once we went on strike. And whatever they got now is like the ground floor that everyone has to build on. And we will see what you guys get. All right, John Lopez, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, where do you stand on the Transformers franchise? To be honest, I remember growing up and the first one was a huge deal. Shia LaBeouf I loved. Megan Fox, it was like her coming out party. Everybody my age loved Megan Fox. And I don't think there's been a bigger drop in terms of like interest amongst my friends on a franchise that we love so much than than with Transformers. Although they still make money, so I don't know. They do. They're just petering. I mean, this is just like franchise squeezing the value out of every last corner of the orange. Get whatever juice you can. The Bumblebee movie, that the most recent one, opened to 21.6 million and actually ended up being profitable. Most of the gross was from overseas. And now we have another Transformers. This one is Rise of the Beasts, where they are now animals. They can uh, they can act, in, and apparently one of the humans turns into a Transformer in this one. Yeah, and this is like based on an older television series from like the 80s that people liked, apparently. I don't know. Everybody likes the Transformers still. It's like fast food. People, like, no matter what, people are just still going to see Transformers. But, you know, I do think that they lose something with no Michael Bay. Bumblebee, I think, suffered because of it. He directed four movies. This is sort of his opus. He's a producer on this one, but sort of in name only, kind of how Steven Spielberg is a producer, in quote, on this one. So my prediction, the tracking for this weekend is about $60 million for Transformers Rise of the Beasts. I'm going to take the under on this. I just feel like, at least in the U.S., the interest level, the tolerance for Transformers has gone down and the overperformance of the Spider-Man movie is going to take a lot of that young audience away. I think Spider-Man is going to hold really well this weekend and Transformers will suffer. Is there a franchise that's more unrecognizable from where it began than Transformers? Like if you told somebody in 2007 or whatever that first one came out, that like the fifth one is going to have no Shia LaBeouf, no Megan Fox, no Michael Bay. Like it's just a completely different movie franchise. Like w- has that ever happened before? But think of who the star is here. The star is giant robots that transform. That's the premise. That is what has been cool about this from the beginning. Now, obviously, Michael Bay brought his particular sensibility, uh, his auteurishness, if you want to use that term for, you know, creepy shots of young women and oversized explosions. <laughs> but that was the appeal. And this is, you know, they feel that they can replicate this. The reviews I've seen said it delivers on what Transformers movies are. A bunch of explosions and Transformers transforming. So that's the appeal here. You know, they don't have a star. At least the fourth one replaced Shia with Mark Wahlberg. But they're trying to reboot this. And they think Anthony Ramos can be a star. He was in Hamilton. He was in In the Heights. Dominique Fishback is in this. She's had some great roles lately. Obviously, they are not the reason people are seeing this movie. But, you know, we'll see. I I just feel like it's going to probably underperform. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And it's got Pete Davidson, your favorite. The weirdest career in Hollywood right now is Pete Davidson's. I know. When he's not making angry phone calls to PETA or appearing in Taco Bell commercials or starring in a Peacock series, he is playing the wisecracking mirage, his voice is. Um, There's a funny line in the Hollywood Reporter review about it. It says, the comedian actor's voice is distractingly recognizable, delivering lame Marky (laughs) Mark jokes and groaners like cojones muy grande. 
it can't be worse than those two like little mini Cooper cars from the second movie that that had an awful voiceover. Situation. Oh, the racist ones. Yes, I remember that. Oh, they were like the yeah. Jar Jar Binks of Transformers. Yeah, I, I I I got off the Transformers train after that movie. I was like, I'm good. I'm also like 18 years old now. I, I think I'm good. Yeah, exactly. No, that that the teenager and kind of preteen audience is really the key for Transformers. So maybe this. Yeah, will it's like the kids who like buy Transformers toys and play with them. I get it. Yes, and young boys who are like, wait, Megan Fox exists. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> All right. That is the show for today. I want to thank our guest, John Lopez. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.